following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. As we continue on in our worship, we want to look into the Gospel of Luke as we've been doing uh, for quite some time now. And the specific text for our morning is uh, coming from Luke 17, verses 20 to 37. And the title for the message is The Coming Kingdom. The Coming Kingdom. And um, so let's take a look at that together. And it reads, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came. And destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's pray. God, grant to us understanding about the nature of your son's return. Grant to us a heart of readiness that is preparing for that return. May the entire orientation of our lives reflect this truth. For we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. <clears throat> Our passage for this morning begins with the Pharisees asking Jesus a question about when the kingdom of God was going to show up. You see, because based on the Old Testament scriptures, the Jews in Jesus' day were aware of this moment in history when God was going to send a deliverer, a Messiah, literally an anointed one, 
who was going to usher in what was called the kingdom of God. And if you look at the whole history of the Bible, it was clear that there was this cosmic battle going on between evil and good. And many ways it looks like sin is prevailing in our world. But the promise of God through his prophets throughout the Old Testament was that a day is coming when God would tolerate it no more. A moment in history when God would send his deliverer and that will be the end of it. He would usher in entirely new era of peace and prosperity and love and life and comfort where righteousness would reign. And so these Pharisees ask Jesus, when is this going to take place? Where, how are we going to know that the kingdom is coming? Because the Jewish understanding of that day of the of the coming of the Messiah, of of the kingdom of God, was that it was not going to be something subtle. It was going to be rather something spectacular. Um, It was going to be obvious to everybody who was witnessing that day that the kingdom of God had come. The sky would break open and the angels would appear. The trumpets would sound. Miracles would happen. In other words, the kingdom of God as it is described in the Old Testament writings would come with power, with a demonstration of signs that would be undeniable to everyone that the Messiah had come. And so the Pharisees asked Jesus, when is this going to happen? Well, so you can imagine how shocked the Pharisees were, when Jesus replied to them, the kingdom of God is not going to come like that. It's not going to come with these signs that are spectacular that you're looking for. And then he drops a bombshell on them and he says, you know what? The kingdom of God has actually already arrived. It's in your midst. It's among you. Now, this phrase, in your midst, it's important because probably a lot of you have grown up reading the NIV Bible. And in the New International Version, it actually says the kingdom of God is within you. And that's not probably the best translation because that conveys the idea that what Jesus was trying to say is the kingdom of God is inside of you, in your hearts. But we have to remember that Jesus is talking to Pharisees who were God's enemies who actually didn't have a relationship with God in, for all intents and purposes. And so it really wouldn't make sense that Jesus is telling these Pharisees, the kingdom of God is inside of you. Okay? And in the context of everything that we're going to talk about this morning, about this passage, you're going to discover that it actually makes a lot more sense to recognize that what Jesus was actually saying was, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's, it's here now. In your presence. You see, because earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus rebuked the people for their lack of understanding, that they they didn't grasp the significance of the events that were unfolding before their eyes through the ministry of Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 12, verse 54 to 56, it says, He also said to the crowd, speaking of Jesus, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming. And so it happens. 
And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? You see, in other words, Jesus was saying, you are hoping and praying for God's kingdom to come. But you don't realize that the answer to your prayers has already come through my ministry. The kingdom is right in front of your eyes and you don't recognize it. You don't understand the significance of what God is doing in your generation through me. Because you see, here is the problem. Jesus arrived on the scene as a poor carpenter from a small village of Nazareth with this ragtag team of uneducated men and a periphery of women following him. And I think the thinking of every devout Jew in those days was, how in the world could this sad little revolution led by this uneducated guy possibly be the fulfillment of this dramatic picture of the kingdom of God that we are given through the Old Testament prophets, the two just didn't connect in their minds. It didn't make sense. You cannot be what we've been waiting for. This can't be it. This can't be. You see, because what the Jews didn't understand was that the kingdom of God, the coming of the Messiah, would not be one singular event it was actually going to be two events. In other words, the Messiah was going to come twice. And in the first coming of the Messiah, there would be no trumpets, no fanfare, no army of angels. Instead, the Messiah would come humbly as a suffering servant to die for the sins of the world. That's what caused so much confusion. In Jesus' day. That's why Jesus says in verse 25, But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And after Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead, he appeared to his frightened disciples who were just as confused as everyone else who couldn't figure out what God was doing. And in Luke 24, verse 45 to 47, it says, Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is, what it is this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. In other words, the fact that the Messiah would come first to suffer and die was right there in the Bible, in the Jewish Old Testament, but they couldn't understand that. And so he gathered these frightened disciples and took them through Scripture. And he said, do you see how things had to happen this way? They were predicted. They were prophesied all along. You just didn't know how to understand what the prophets were saying. That I would come first to suffer and die. And then I will come again a second time. You see, the kingdom of God is here today. But it is not here in its fullness. It's not here in its fullness. That fullness of the coming of God's kingdom won't be realized until Christ comes for the second time. And that is an event that has not yet happened. And so we live in what is known as the end times, between the first and the second coming 
of Jesus Christ. And what this means is that we have glimpses of the power of God at work in this world, but they're only glimpses. The truth is, at moments, we do experience God's power at work in our midst. But let's be honest, as Christians, sometimes it also feels like we've chosen the losing team, doesn't it? As both a medical doctor and a pastor, I have witnessed what I would clearly hold firm to as being miraculous healings. I've seen what, as far as everything I can explain medically, I would have to say I witnessed a miracle at that hospital bedside. And yet, the truth is, I've also attended plenty of funerals as well of unanswered prayers for healing, of cancers ravaging a person's body and eventually winning. We witness dramatic conversion experiences as people's broken lives are completely turned around when they meet Christ. But we also see others backsliding, returning to the destructive habits of their old life. You see, this is the frustration of living in these end times, these awkward in-between times between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, is that there is a display of his power, but that power is not in fullness. The enemies of God have not yet been fully vanquished, and so sin still reigns in our world. We have a taste, we just have a taste of the reign of Christ but it's only a taste. It's sort of like we're stuck in the trailer of a movie and we're not able to actually watch the real movie, you know? We're in this endless loop of the trailer. Well, when we experience unanswered prayers and witness evil triumphing over good, rather than becoming angry at God, these frustrations should cause us to long for his return. You see, because when Jesus returns, he will not come the second time as a suffering servant, but as a warrior and a king to right all the wrongs and to claim those who are his. In verse 22, Jesus says to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. Now, it's interesting that although the conversation began with the Pharisees asking Jesus a question, the conversation now turns to his disciples as he wants to teach them about the nature of his second coming. And what it sounds like Jesus is saying in verse 22 is, it's like, it sounds, it reads superficially like he's saying, you know, one day when I'm gone, you're going to long for those days. You're going to be nostalgic of that time when I used to be with you, these days of the Son of Man. And so you're going to wish I was back with you. But that's not actually what Jesus is saying. Because everything that Jesus says, all of the events captured in this discourse, are not looking to the past of what already happened, but are about future events that have yet to take place. 
And so what Jesus is actually saying when he talks about these days of the Son of Man is he's referring to the longing that the disciples are going to experience for the return of Jesus that is yet to happen. And this is going to be a common experience, Jesus says, of everyone who follows him is because of the brokenness of this life, because sin still reigns, in your hearts there will be this longing of every disciple to say, when is Christ going to come back? When will he come to reign in power? When will he return? It's like nibbling on appetizers all the time and saying, when is the main course going to finally come? And this is what Jesus says. When I do finally return, the exact opposite of what happened in my first coming is going to take place. You see, because in his first coming, the people did not acknowledge that he was the Messiah. Why? Because it was so unimpressive. It was too subtle. It looked too weak. And so they were looking and saying, he couldn't be the Messiah. This can't be God's plan. You see, they were looking for spectacular signs. And they didn't realize that the Messiah was right in front of them because he just looked like a nobody. He looked like a humble servant. But look at what Jesus says about his second coming. And he said to his disciples, the days are coming when do you desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there and look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so the son of man so will be so the son of man so will the son of man be in his day you know this is what jesus is saying as the time for my return nears there's going to be a lot of rumor circulating and people are going to make a lot of false claims that i have actually already returned and they're going to say look here or look over there and jesus warns his disciples Don't get suckered into those false claims because this is what Jesus says. When I return the second time, it ain't going to be subtle. (laughs) That's what he says. It ain't going to be subtle. And he compares his second return with an enormous arc of lightning splitting the sky, going from one corner of the horizon to the other. And what Jesus is in essence saying is no one at that day is going to have to think, say, you know, I think that's Jesus or is it Elvis? I don't know. You know, um, I, I think he might have already come because Jesus says, when I come the second time, everybody is going to know that I've come. Nothing is going to be subtle about my return. And so he tells his disciples that not only is his return going to be dramatic, but he also says it's going to catch a lot of people off guard. And he illustrates this point by comparing it to the days of Noah. Verses 26 to 27, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed 
them all. In other words, what Jesus is saying is the very day that the floodwaters broke into the world and destroyed it, that day just felt like any other Wednesday. People were going about eating and partying and drinking. And in fact, there were weddings scheduled on that day. I mean, no bride wants it to rain on her wedding day. But can you imagine the horror of those weddings that day? Of those early raindrops turning into bursting oceans of water. It's a terrifying picture, isn't it? That on that day of the flood, weddings were scheduled and everyone was wiped out. One of the, some of the most poignant images that I saw on the days following the 9-11 terrorist attacks back in 2001 were these pictures of these Abandoned cars throughout train stations in New Jersey and New York. These cars belonged to commuters who died in the Twin Towers when they went down that day. And no one knew which cars they were until they found them there days later unclaimed. And when I saw those cars, I just thought, you know, when that guy drove to work that day, and parked his car in that train station. He had no idea that that was going to be the last day of his life, did he? He never knew that he would witness an airplane crashing into his office building and killing him. And that's what Jesus is saying as a warning to his disciples. You know, there is a certain routineness to life that is going to lull everybody into a false sense of security. That, you know, every day is just like the other. And what reason do I have to doubt that today is going to be just like it was yesterday? But Jesus says, you know what? That may be true of every day up to now. But one day, that's not going to be true. Just like it was in Noah's flood. People are going to be caught off guard when I return. Jesus makes another comparison with his return to the day when the city of Sodom was destroyed. In verses 28 to 30, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, what the Old Testament tells us is that both Noah's generation as well as the inhabitants of Sodom were exceptionally wicked and depraved people. But what's so interesting to me is that in both of these examples of Noah's time and Sodom, their sin and depravity is not actually what Jesus is highlighting. He doesn't go for the obvious connection. 
Instead, what Jesus actually ends up focusing on in both of these examples that he uses is just the fact that these people were so consumed with the busyness of everyday life. And they lived under this presumption that they will always have tomorrow. And it was out of that false presumption that they were caught off guard when Judgment Day arrived for them. And that's scary because I think that's what all of us are very easily susceptible to in our own lives. You're just living life. You're just going to work. You're just trying to take care of the kids. You're you're just trying to run your errands. And you just get so tunnel vision that that's what life is about, is getting these things done in my life. Like, this is life. This is the stuff of life. So that you don't even see the bigger picture of what life is about. It's interesting. He goes on in verse 31 to 32 and he says, On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. The picture that he gives is striking here. It's of people realizing that judgment day has come. The end of the world as far as they know it. And yet their first instinct is to want to rush into their house and try to grab their possessions. Telling, isn't it? Doomsday has come. Judgment has come. Christ has returned. And what these people want to do is run into their house and grab their stuff. In other words, the picture that Jesus is painting is These are people that are living without a clue of what life is actually all about. You know, the end of the world is here. The end of the world is here, and all you should be worried about is the destiny of your soul. Because that's all that matters at that moment, on that day. But all you're thinking about is running in the house and grabbing your jewelry and your laptop. And that's why Jesus adds this warning. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. What is the story of Lot's wife? I think many of you know it. On the day that God brought judgment to Sodom and destroyed it with burning sulfur, he spared the life of Lot and his wife and his two daughters sending them an angel to guide them out of the city. And as the angel was guiding them before the destruction fell on the city, the angel gave them three very simple commands. Don't stop. Keep running. Don't look back at the city and run to the surrounding mountains where you'll be safe. But Lot's wife couldn't resist. And so she turned back and looked at Sodom one last time. And as Genesis tells us, she was turned into a pillar of salt. Now, I don't know about you, but man, that really seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? Like, I remember when I was reading this as a little, learning about this story as a little kid in Sunday school. I I remember thinking, I probably would have looked back. Just because there's a fireworks display going on there. And, I mean, what if it was just curiosity that caused Lot's wife to look back at Sodom? Well, let me say this. 
In light of the fact that Jesus gives us this warning about Lot's wife, right after he talks about people wanting to rush back in their house to grab their treasures, their possessions, I think we can confidently say that Lot's wife didn't look back out of curiosity, but out of love. You see, the moral lesson of Lot's wife is that she turned around and looked longingly at Sodom because the truth is she loved the life that she had back there. The truth is she actually belonged back there with the citizens of Sodom. And so she received the same punishment as the city that she loved. David Gooding writes this, It was not their indulgence in lurid sins which left them so unprepared for God's judgment when it came. According to Christ, it was their total preoccupation with life's normal activities, all of them quite proper in their way, to the total exclusion of any concern for God's warnings and the gospel. Indeed, with Solomon, with Sodom already burning behind her under the wrath of Almighty God, Lot's wife still looked longingly back to the goods and activities she had so reluctantly left behind. And doing so, she perished. She perished. And so Jesus follows up this warning of Lot's wife with these words in verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. In other words, what Jesus is saying is there are so many ways that you're going to try to attempt to find meaning in life, to save your life, to try to be immortal. And one of the most common ways is through our wealth. By acquiring more and more things, Jesus is saying you are fooling yourself into thinking that that gives you a sense of meaning, a sense of security, because you own a lot of things. And Jesus says, in the end, when the judgment comes, you're going to discover that stuff just falls away to the wayside and it doesn't last for eternity. And in fact, those very things can distract you to the point that you actually end up missing out on what really mattered, which is a relationship with God. It's not until you lose your life, letting go of the things that you so desperately cling to for meaning and joy and purpose. And trust in God and God alone that you will find eternal life. This passage concludes with these words in verse 34 to 35. I tell you in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be to get taken And the other left. Now, a lot of people think that what this is referring to is the rapture. This idea that, you know, in Revelation it talks about those who are in Christ will be taken up to heavens. And, you know, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and other passages in Scripture talk about this rapture, this being taken up. But I don't actually think that's what Jesus is referring to in this passage. In fact, I think a strong argument can be made that the people who end up disappearing are actually the ones that are facing judgment. It's 
the believers that are left behind on the day of judgment. One of the ways that we see this argument is if you actually look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, it says this. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. It's interesting that the saints are the ones that are portrayed as the ones that have remained before they're taken up to be with God. Another argument, I think, also comes from the passage itself because Jesus gives them this picture of a husband and wife lying in a bed and one spouse has disappeared suddenly and the other one is still there and sleeping in the bed. And two women grinding in a mill and one of them disappears and the other one is left. And so naturally... The disciples say, where, Lord? Where? Meaning, where did these people go to? Where did they disappear to? Where did they end up? And Jesus says, where the corpses, there the vultures will gather. That's not a picture of heaven, is it? That's a picture of hell. And so he says, where do they go? They go to punishment. What's so striking to me about this picture that Jesus paints is that there are two people living almost identical lives, a husband and wife even, experiencing the same challenges, going through the same pains, experiencing the same joys, listening to the same sermons, attending the same church. And yet one is taken and one is left behind. Meaning that superficially, it may look like we're all in the same boat. We're all on the same page. We're all worshiping the same God. But there will be a day of reckoning when God will judge the hearts of men. And it will be revealed whether there really was faith or not. Whether you really were believing or you were just going through the motions. On that day... Everything will be revealed for what it is. One taken, one left behind. I think families will be divided on that day. And I think this is God's word to us. This is the way that history ends, brothers and sisters. And you know what? Just like it was in Noah's day, if you believe this stuff, you're going to be ridiculed. People are going to look at you and go, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Like, how many thousands of years has human history gone on just as it is every day? And Jesus says, just like in the days of Noah, people will mock you. Imagine Noah building this 450-foot-long boat. <laughs> I was like, what are you doing, Noah? What are you doing? I mean, this guy's he's gone off his rocker. It's crazy. Until the day the floodwaters actually came. And Christ is saying, listen, I am warning you so that it doesn't have to be this way for you. So that you can reevaluate your entire life based on this destiny that I'm mapping out for you. 
Because I'm afraid that you might be that guy that is sitting on your rooftop thinking, I got to get in my house and get my jewelry. And my, I've got to get in my safe and get my money. And Jesus says, on that day, that's ridiculous. On that day, all that's going to matter is your soul. So live your life in the present, embracing that reality with everything you do. Let's pray. As we get ready to go into communion, I want to invite you to a time of reflection on this passage. Because let's be honest, it's not an easy passage. It's a difficult one. But as harsh as the words are found in this passage, I think we have to see this as God's grace, his mercy toward us, to warn us of the coming judgment that is coming on this world. And right now, it feels like we're on the losing team. Right now, it feels like we're the ridicule of society. You know, like, haven't we gotten beyond these stupid beliefs of ancient, ignorant people? Aren't we in the modern era when we know better than this? And let's be honest here. God is the butt of many jokes. And people very openly and flagrantly mock his name. People, atheists, will throw out challenges. If God is real, let him strike me down with lightning right this minute. There are some famous atheists that actually say that line in the midst of their lectures, trying to debunk the existence of God. But what the scriptures tell us is a, a different picture. It says that God is patient. God is merciful. Despite everything that we are doing against him, right now is the age of mercy, of grace where God is holding back his judgment so that as many people as possible can be rescued and saved. But Jesus wants it to be very clear that that season of grace does not go on indefinitely. You don't always have tomorrow because one day judgment is coming. And what Jesus is inviting us to evaluate in our own lives is how are you going to react? How are you going to respond when the day of judgment comes? Are you going to be like Lot's wife, looking back at a burning city and thinking about everything that you're going to miss in that place? Are you going to be like that guy on the rooftop as your house is burning, wanting to figure out how you could rush in through the flames and rescue your most treasured possessions in your household? Or are you just going to simply cry out to Jesus, and say, praise the Lord, thank God. For years, I have prayed for this day and long for your return. I come to you, Jesus, naked, naked as I came. I return to you, my maker, my savior, my redeemer, my Messiah. What Jesus says is, the next time I return, there's going to be nothing subtle about my return. It's not going to be like my first coming when people had plenty of ample opportunity to take pot shots at me, a poor carpenter from Nazareth. But next time I come, I come white riding a white horse with a sword coming out of my mouth and judgment on the nations. And I will vindicate everyone who waited faithfully for my return. And this is 
my sincere prayer, brothers and sisters, as your pastor, your shepherd. The thought of experiencing that day and knowing that there might be some in ICC who have sat through weekend after weekend of these messages with eyes glazed and thoughts of the football game in the afternoon. It just kills me to think that there's some of us here that might find that fate. My sincere prayer is that we would take to heart the warning of Jesus Christ and saying, I will come again. I will return. Be ready for that return. Don't let these substitute gods and idols pull your heart away like Lot's wife. Look heavenward and keep your eyes fixed on me and be faithful and cling to me. And one day, those prayers will be answered. And one day, I will come back. And all of the struggle, all of the tears, all of the pain, everything that you have had to endure in this life, for my name's sake, will be vindicated as I come to take you to be with me in eternity. Would you just pray for a few minutes and offer your heart to God? Just offer that prayer to God. I want to be ready, Lord. I want to be ready when you come to take us home. Let's just come before the Lord and pray that simple prayer. So the worship team comes to lead us in a song of response before we come to the Lord's table. Let's pray. Mm-hmm.